Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. No! Oh my God! How could he do that? Are you on? Don't What? Charles Darwin. Welcome everybody back into Nerd Sesh. As always, I'm Carson Brabber, and alongside me is Logan Camden. And today, we are officially in conference final season. It's remarkable that we have made it this far. It has been a wild journey, but here we are with just four teams standing. And because we have whittled it down to four now, that means that very recently, we had a few pretty legitimate teams get eliminated. So before we get into previewing the keys to each of these upcoming series, which is going to be the main theme of this episode... Let's reflect on the teams who were just eliminated, Logan, and let's start with the team that went down most recently, and that is the Philadelphia 76ers, who lost in seven games as the one seed to the Atlanta Hawks, a team that obviously I've been excited by for some time, and it was pretty amazing to see them actually get it done in this fashion, but there's been a lot of talk about dramatic restructuring in Philly, about Ben Simmons' shortcomings, all of this. We talked about maybe the inevitability of the Simmons-Embiid breakup last show, but what are you taking away from this for Philly? Just that. I'm, I'm taking away a, a few things that you just mentioned. One, uh, you've got to get off Ben Simmons' contract. And I don't know, man, you talked about the deterioration of his value progressively through these playoffs, through these last couple of years. That is a behemoth of a contract to move now, man. Like five years, $177 million. It just kicked in this year. It's just going to be tough for Philly, man. He is a really unattractive player to buy in. He's got to be your superstar if you're paying him that kind of money. And... Uh, frankly, let's look at it. He's just not worth that much. So it's going to be hard to move. Maybe they lose value. Um, I don't know, but he, he can't last. I think you've got to move him this offseason. I think another guy that you've got to take a long, hard look at is Doc Rivers. And people have, mm-hmm. I don't know, man, I want to get your gauge on this, Carson, because I feel like Doc Rivers has been scapegoated for a long time. And I don't know if it's fairly or unfairly, but a lot of heads uh, around the NBA, around the association that I think very highly of, and I respect their opinion, a lot of them say that just Doc just doesn't make in-game adjustments. It's plain to see, and it's just that's been the knock on him for a while. So I don't. I guess the question is: is is Doc a guy that 
is this just what you get with Doc? A guy that's going to give you a lot of regular season success, but he just can't get it done in the postseason? Can I limit him to just this scope? Should I weigh Embiid's injury on this season? Like, what do you, what is, what is your takeaway for Doc Rivers uh, after this run to the Sixers, Carson? I think that there are some fair criticisms of him, but I also think that he's a guy who coaches teams to play at a pretty high level defensively. And I think maximize the value for the most part of this team, because when we looked at this roster preseason, I don't think that many people were expecting them to finish as the one seed. And as they continue to have that regular season success, I remain skeptical of them because of the lack of dynamic offensive weapons, because of what felt like the inevitable shortcomings of Ben Simmons in the playoffs. And because of the fact that outside of Toby and Embiid and Seth Curry, when he was on in minutes, when those guys are off the floor, when you're running the bench unit, you were going to rely on shake or maxi to create consistently. And doc didn't really trust either of those guys enough to give them significant run. And it was justified. Neither of them were consistently efficient enough. I would say to demand those kind of volume touches. So I don't think that this lies with doc. He's going to have another year at it, I would say, pretty much for sure. I mean, this was his first year around, and they had a pretty high level of success, even if it didn't end how you would have wanted. But I just think when we look at this, some of the things that people were shocked by, I just don't fully understand. Like the Ben Simmons slander that is going around talking about how he's going to end up in Shanghai. Like, dude, this is Ben Simmons (laughs) in this closeout series. He was 10, 6, and 8.5 on 54% true shooting. Terrible for a guy you're paying $35 million a year, right? Really disappointing. The passivity was just plain to see. The free throw shooting was obviously atrocious, and he just looked like he didn't have faith in himself. He wasn't aggressive. And maybe the blatant lack of self-confidence is a little bit different, but in the last time that the Sixers were closed out in the playoffs, in that series, 2019, when Simmons was actually out there, He put up 11.5, 7, and 6 on 60% true shooting. That included a 7-point performance and a 6-point performance. And in 2018, he was 14.5, 8, and 6.5 on 52% true shooting. And that included a famous 1-point game against the Celtics. So if you were looking at Ben Simmons and thinking, oh, look at this dynamic half-court player who's going to be abusing guys out of the post regularly, who's going to be running pick and roll, like, I don't know what you were expecting. This is what happens to him. He is relegated to a non-factor And I still think that he's a valuable player because of the playmaking, because of the defense. Even down at the last minute, he was hounding Trey. He was doing everything he could to have an impact there. But yeah, he can't be the second best player if you're going to win a title. He was clearly not their second best player in this series, but that's just kind of who he is. And then when it comes to the Maxi or Milton thing, you just need that dynamic perimeter creator. You need to do whatever you can to get Lowry, to get Dame, that game-changing point guard who controls the tempo, who can kill teams out of pick and roll with Embiid. And then alongside those guys, they just need more real quality shooters so you can play 25 minutes with confidence so it's not Furcon who you're throwing in there. Maybe Doc could do a little bit better. Maybe in those last couple minutes, they could be getting Embiid the ball in his spots a little bit more instead of him initiating behind the three-point line, it felt like every time. But other than that, man, there were just shortcomings in this roster that he is not directly responsible for, and I think that's what undid this team more than anything, and it was predictable. Yeah, I agree for the most part. There are two things in that I want to touch on. You mentioned the passivity for Ben Simmons. I mean, even down to the last minute, dude, he's got wide open looks at the rim, wide open looks at the rack, and he's just, aren't you going to dump a little pass off to Toby? No, Ben, you got to go up strong. In, in With two minutes left, you're over there kicking the rock with a wide open hoop. Um, Another thing that I want to touch on, though, you're talking about Embiid late in games creating behind the perimeter, dude. What did he have, like, 
it felt like he had damn near 10 turnovers in the fourth quarter of those last two games. He's trying to do absolutely too much, and it just seemed, uh, this is not an overall complaint on Embiid. Embiid played out of his mind for a guy with a bum knee and with a lack of creators around him. He played his ass off, but in those late scenarios, man, I don't want the Rock in Embiid's hands like that. Yes, I want Embiid touching the ball. Not there. I don't want him creating for this offense. That's not his... It's not his role if it's not out of the post. I don't want him handling the ball. You know, I mean, Gallinari is just poking stuff loose. They get a wide-open fast break. It's late in those late scenarios. I don't know if to put that on Doc or Embiid. He was doing absolutely too much. So, I don't know. That's uh, Late-game closing scenarios are always going to be a little bit, uh, I feel like, troublesome. And that's another factor that I think the Sixers have to focus on. We're just, like you said, find another perimeter creator for the entirety of the game. Um but the closeout scenarios were the biggest thing to me in this series. The Hawks have so many offensive initiators, mm-hmm. so much offensive talent, and the key that you pointed out, it came to fruition in the late-game scenarios, and that's why the Hawks won this series. Exactly. That's what I tweeted out after the game last night. It's that teams with more shot makers tend to win playoff series, and this team had three consistently reliable shot makers, and with Danny Green out of the picture, that is just hindered even further. And it ended up being that they just did not have enough offensive difference makers. They played certainly a good defensive series. I mean, they made Trey work, but there were just enough other guys who could step up to the moment. And Philly didn't have that variety of counters. So it seems to me like things are frayed beyond repair with Simmons based on what Embiid and Doc were saying. Embiid literally straight up scapegoating Simmons and saying, I felt like the turning point was when we had a guy pass up on a wide open dunk and then we missed a free throw out of it instead. Obviously, Embiid is a bit of a diva personality. He can be very upfront with stuff like that, but that's not good. But at the same time, who is taking on that contract and what legitimate asset are you getting back for it? Like, it's up there for the worst contract in basketball. And I still think Ben Simmons is a good player who I want on my team. And so I'm not going to sit here and deride him as much as some other people are because you kind of knew that this is what he was. And ahead of last year's playoffs, maybe or no, ahead of two years ago playoffs, maybe there was some hope, but it's a trend. You see something three times in a row and you know it to be true. And when it makes sense with his skill set, when he doesn't have that dynamic ability to create for himself, you know it to be true. And so it's going to have to be either a, obviously evolution in his skill set where he does become more comfortable facing up where he's a more dynamic role man, something like that, where he develops more of those actual big man skills, or it's just going to have to be a complete change in his role which I guess would still be just leaning towards playing him as a big man, as a power forward to center, which is what they do for the most part. He just needs to be better at it to actually have value in the half court. The biggest thing to me, man, and I agree, he needs to he needs to carve out something in his game, but I wonder if it's like a, a mentality thing or an understanding of the game, Carson, because I don't know. I watch Ben Simmons. You see Ben Simmons off the court, and I'm not saying that he doesn't care, he doesn't try, although I do think that if he had sh- if he had shown a little more effort in these first few years, we would have seen drastic improvements. The biggest thing is, like, when you watch him in warm-ups, man, and he's taking little shots from the elbow or just, just warming up, Ben Simmons might have the worst touch of any basketball player I have ever watched. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, in today's game, man, it is so easy to practice one shot to his back. Like, Ben Simmons with a floater or Ben Simmons with anything inside the arc is a dangerous basketball player because he le- he would at least have a reliable shot to turn to in these late-game scenarios, and he just doesn't have... We all wanted this drastic growth in 
one off season from Ben Simmons after his rookie season, where off he gets that three point shot, it's over. Ben, I want one shot. This next mm-hmm. season, when you come back, I want one. It's not that hard. Pick out one shot that you want in your bag and make it reliable. Like, that's that's it, bro. I don't even think it's that hard. I think Ben Simmons is making life hard on himself, bro. Build your confidence up. Find one reliable shot. Ben makes the game way tougher on himself than it has to be. Now, I do want to ask you this, Carson. If you're throwing him out there, do you think that... Oh, I guess we'll touch on this later with the Celtics-Thunder deal, but do you think that the 76ers would have to give up value the way Boston gave up um, in a trade like that? That's a good question. I kind of feel like it depends on the partner. I don't know that they are going to trade him away if they're not going to get any sort of asset back. But again, maybe this is just beyond repair. and Maybe that is the only option that they have. I kind of feel like there will still be a team somewhere that thinks we can build around him. We don't have to have our best player be an interior force so that they're constantly clashing stylistically. If we give him a little bit more free reign, maybe we can unlock something with him or we trust our player development. Maybe that's true enough to where you can still get something of an asset, but you're certainly not getting a haul of first-round picks. You're not getting a star player in return. Like That's just the reality of it. And so you need to find a way with the assets at hand to get, again, that dynamic perimeter creator. Maybe you try to throw him at the Raptors, see if they have any interest. They're a pretty smart franchise, though, and they're probably going to look at him and say, how do we integrate him into our team? And that's what's so tough is he needs to be a third option offensively, if that, and then he can be your best perimeter defender, and he can wreck the game in that way. And that is where his impact is always going to be. And then with the playmaking and with the transition scoring, but you need to understand that and you need to have guys who are dynamic enough alongside him to win a title. And I don't think that Toby was a dynamic enough second guy for the Sixers in these playoffs for them to actually win a title. And I don't think that the guys around them, again, made enough shots and were able to create for themselves at a high enough level. So with that, let's move on from the Sixers to the other team out East that lost in equally dramatic fashion, if not more dramatic fashion in the game seven, The Brooklyn Nets, obviously, on the back of a Herculean effort from Kevin Durant, just couldn't get it done at the end of the day. Harden, obviously, hampered by that quad injury. Kyrie Irving out of the picture. Everything besides Kevin Durant basically just went wrong for them. But what does this mean for the Nets? Is there any long-term takeaway from this, or is it just kind of they were so injured that they got beaten by a team that they were that much better than? I think there's a few takeaways. Um, I think the first one is just... On the season as a whole, this is just unfortunate. And, you know, I mean, we all expected... Don't get me wrong. I'm not mad. I'm not mad at all. This is the best playoffs I've watched in a long time. Just with the the parity that we have in the league. I love it. I'm so glad that we have four teams that were just completely unexpected to be in these scenarios just late in the playoffs. But it's just unfortunate. You hate watching injuries batter any team. Um, and especially one that we thought was going to be so much fun to watch at full health. And we mm-hmm. never saw them there. Um, I think the big takeaway from for the Brooklyn Nets for basically the league as a whole and I think we've seen this again with the four teams that we have left you need depth depth mm-hmm. is so important in these playoffs and uh, you can see with the Sixers when you have a lack of offensive creators yeah you got a solid eight you got a nice top three but it's not enough and the Nets have again in you have to contextualize in this Buck series that um they are obviously without Kyrie and Harden and that matters but 
No depth on this team. And yeah, it's unfortunate that the guy shot like shit around KD. That Bruce Brown was missing his threes. That James Harden was obviously hampered by that hamstring injury. That Joe Harris couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. These guys just weren't shooting well. And that's also unfortunate for the Nets, but there are a lack of... There are a lack of creators after that big three, and that matters. So, I mean, I think the big takeaway from the Nets is depth, team depth is so much more important than I think teams originally valued that you can't just throw together a team of stars and expect it to work because health can come in, you can have a bad shooting stretch, and just like that in the blink of an eye, (laughs) you've been bested by Coach Bud and Giannis Mm -hmm. somehow. Yeah, that's interesting, but I also think that... The Nets had guys who could play their role at a high level. I love a lot of the things that Bruce Brown does. I love him as the weird point big that he is, competing defensively, (laughs) making good decisions, knocking down floaters. I thought Blake far surpassed my expectations when they picked him up. I mean, he's knocking down shots. He's playing a simplified role offensively. He was playing, obviously, great defensively, given his role and his matchup with Giannis. When Jeff Green was out there, he was knocking down big-time shots. Landry Shamit, when you get him for 17 minutes a game, is a perfectly good 7th or 8th guy, whatever he is normally. What it just came down to is they needed guys to play roles that they weren't equipped to play, and it ended up being that it all fell on the shoulders of KD. And if I'm going to point to one guy who I was really disappointed by, it's Joe Harris, just because down the stretch over the last five games, he was 13 of 49, and his confidence looked to me, to be off in a way that I can't remember ever seeing it, and he's just missing shots that are his bread and butter, and if a couple more of those shots go down, then you're going to win, but you also can't expect him to be your second best offensive player and actually make a title run or even get out of this series probably, and with Harden in the state that he was, just completely unable to obviously get downhill, even when he's taking those step backs, it looks like he's just elevating weirdly. He was just so dramatically hampered. And yeah, he missed a couple open shots, but he just really couldn't get his own shot in that way. It comes down to one man who, by the way, on the wrong side of 30, coming off of an Achilles tear, just averaged his playoff career high in points, rebounds, steals, blocks on 51-40-87 splits. Like, KD was utterly superhuman here. And I just think... If James Harden is himself, they run away with this series. If Kyrie is himself and Harden even doesn't play, like if Kyrie just doesn't turn that ankle, I think that they easily win this series. And Lord knows if all three of those guys are healthy, nobody is stopping this team, certainly in the Eastern Conference. So that's kind of my takeaway. I just think that they have guys who can play their roles. But unfortunately, they were not able to play their roles in the way that you normally expect them to. And that was their undoing because they were missing basically two of their three best players. James Harden was out there. He's able to impact the game with his IQ, with his ability to get to the line, his playmaking instincts. But when he does not have to be respected as that shot creator, your offense becomes a lot more one-dimensional as opposed to being just a versatile array of guys who can kill you in isolation, who move the ball well, who can kill you with shooting from anywhere on the floor. Like the Nets just lost that, and I don't think that they're going to lose that again if they're healthy. Yeah, so I want to ask on that, I mean, what do you do? What's next? Like, like who is the ideal free agent for the Nets? Like, who do you pick up to add to your uh, committee of role players? I was thinking about that. Maybe there's some minor retooling to be done here. I don't know that you need to add shooting. I mean, guys like J.J. Redick, Patty Mills are going to hit free agency this time around. Personally, I don't know if that's a priority because you have shooters. I mean, as we mentioned, the Landry Shamit, Jeff Green, Joe Harris of the world, those guys do their jobs. 
you have enough creators to where you don't need like a Patty Mills bench point guard type because you have three guys who can be your primary ball handlers on offense for all 48 minutes if you just stagger their minutes properly. And then maybe you say they could upgrade at the five. Personally, I hope that Claxton develops into that role and so that they don't need to actually get somebody. I don't think you're getting a game-changing center out there no matter what. And I don't think that that was their problem in this series. I mean, we highlighted maybe the lack of rim protection, but at the end of the day, I thought that Blake held his own, and I don't think that that's where they lost this series. I think they lost this series on the offensive end compared to what you normally expect of them. Yeah, I think so too, but I'll ask a different question then. I mean, do you think they need to come up with a contingency plan for if this happens again next season? You can always add more good players, and you can always have more options. So in that sense, sure, and Spencer Dinwiddie maybe is part of that contingency plan if you find a way to bring him back because then you're talking about another guy who can be a dynamic creator. I don't know if he's a top priority because I don't know how he fits in with your three superstar players, but he's another guy who can be a legit creator. I just think even though Kyrie is injury-prone historically, the other two aren't, and you expect them to be out there. And this was a rough season for all three of them in a way that it just historically has not been for Katie or certainly not James Harden, who was an Iron Man for so long. I don't know how concerned you need to be about this happening again because it was just crazy bad luck in a season that was decimated by injuries across the board. And I just think at full strength, they're that much better than everybody else. So to me, maybe you pick up a better option at center. Again, I'm hoping Claxon develops into that role is there anywhere else that you look at and say, oh, they need to actually get better and add guys? Yeah, I mean, you talk about not needing uh, another playmaker, another guy to handle the rock, take the weight off. I think you should. I mean, and this isn't a knock on, like, I like Mike James. I like Chris Giazza. Like, I like their guys. But, yeah, I think a guy who could have just taken a little bit of a weight off KD and just handled the rock, just, just to relieve him. Although, again, maybe if Joe Harris is knocking down his shots and we're looking at this mm-hmm. series a completely different way, I agree, though. If the Nets are healthy, next playoffs, I don't think this is a competition unless the Sixers dramatically retool or other teams retool. I think this is, it's a Nets title to lose. Yeah, and I think that they built a team around their three dynamic shot creators. That's why they were willing to let Levert go. That's why they remained the title favorite without Dinwiddie. And then unfortunately, they just didn't have three of those guys. They had like 1.3. So <laughs> with that point three, that is James Harden, what do you make of this for him? Because I think that some people might try to use this as another ding on his legacy and say, oh, he didn't show up in the big moments. I just think when you're looking at a guy who can't explode whatsoever, like what can you expect of him? Does this matter at all to you about him? Or is this just like cross this off his resume? It basically never even happened because he probably shouldn't have been playing. If anything, this is a positive for him. I'm proud that mm. James decided to suit up and said, yeah, I'm going to, give something because I know that Katie doesn't stand a chance doing this by himself. No, I think this is I think this is a positive uh, impact on Harden's legacy. He's he's a team player. Like he could have sat there and said, nah, my hamstring hurt. I'm, I'm gonna let yeah. Katie try to shoulder this all by himself. Um no, I think if you hold this against him, it's kind of stupid. I agree. And I will say it's crazy impressive to me that he can still still get to the line ten times in a game <laughs> like this where again, you know what he's doing. I mean he can step back he can get to the floater, and that's it. And he's still able to just be so crafty and deceptive to where he gets 10 free points for himself. That was pretty remarkable. KD in this series, I think, made his pretty strong best player in the world case. As I just said, set all those career highs for himself as the player with the greatest scoring skill set ever. 
Is there anything else to say about him? I do want to ask one last time. So, do you think this is the best KD has ever been? Man, that's a good question. I will change my answer to it's as good as he's ever been. Like, I don't know if I could take this version over 2019 KD, who, again, was just shredding teams when he was out there healthy. But he has all the tools now. The playmaking is fully evolved. And, I mean, he was dissecting the Bucks in that game five in particular. It was remarkable facilitating from him. The scoring, obviously, will not go away. The defense is still pretty damn good. I, I don't know if I could pick one peak version of KD but maybe this is it, man. Like, it's absurd what he is doing right now. It is all-time stuff, and this is why he is unequivocally a top 15 player of all time, may go down as better than that, and maybe the most talented guy ever because this is just utterly ridiculous. So with that, let's talk about the one team that's been eliminated that we haven't touched on yet in the Utah Jazz. What's up for them after, obviously, they bow out to a Kawhi-less Clippers team? What can you do? Run it back. That's what the Jazz always do. I mean, they're not going to get any high-market free agents. They don't got the money. They've got a solid roster that, again, went healthy. I think if Mike Conley was at full strength, I think they give this Clippers team a run for their money. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's little takeaways you can look at. Like, I think Donovan Mitchell has to change up. Like, yeah, like you said in our last episode, Mitchell can't. He can't just turn into this. He is a supernova, and he is superhuman, and he can be that Mm -hmm. guy, but... They needed to play team basketball in this series, and Mitchell was kind of a black hole at times. Uh, that can't happen in playoff times, even though I think Mitchell is one of the most valuable playoff performers in the league. Um, I don't, Utah's so weird, man. I don't know what you do. I don't think you can go out and get any big free agents. you got to nail your draft picks. you got to hope that they stay young, because I don't think anybody they get, I have a hard time believing that they're going to crack the rotation, even in free agency, in the draft. Yeah. Like, I think... I think the Jazz just run it back. There's no real big takeaways. You just hope that (laughs) you cross your fingers and hope this works next year. Yeah, and I will say this was a disappointing finish for the Jazz, but I also don't think it was a damnation of everything that they did this year. Like, first off, obviously, they didn't have Conley for five games, and he comes back in game six. They lose anyways, but this was a nightmare matchup for them. As I called out before the playoffs when I said... I will take the Clipper, or uh, yeah, I'll take the Clippers in this series, even though I think the Jazz are a better team because of what they can do to Rudy Gobert. And there's another guy who everybody is just deriding and saying, oh, he sucks in the playoffs. He sucks when it matters most. Well, kinda. He's not the same player. And part of that is if you have the right personnel, you can exploit his skill set in a way that you just can't do for 82 games in the regular season. And until Rudy can punish teams for going small with his offense, until he becomes that intimidating finisher on the inside, maybe even develops a bit of a post game, which personally I don't see happening at this point, but it's something that he could develop in his game theoretically, then going small like this and just pulling him out to the three-point line and saying, we don't need to go inside because we can kill you from the perimeter and we'll take away your impact as a rim protector, at least as compared to what it normally is, that will remain an option for teams with the right personnel. But how many other teams could have done that? I'll tell you who couldn't have done it. The Lakers certainly couldn't have done it. <laughs> the Suns couldn't have done it to this extent. The who are, well, who are the other contenders? I mean, the Nuggets couldn't have done this. Like, this was the nightmare matchup for them for a team that's best five guys are all pretty damn good shooters. Nobody else could have done this. And Gobert still, I think, did his traditional job well. Obviously, he is the best rim protector on the planet. He's still the second best on-off splits on the team. Donnie Bald, 
Bojan was good. Ingles was good. Clarkson had his moments. They just got outshot by a team that was blazing from beyond the arc because they had the personnel to play that way. And it was a really good series, but I'm not going to go out there and say the Jazz can't be this good again next year because I trust their top seven guys so much. And I think if Conley's out there, maybe the series is different. Maybe it isn't. But either way, they are good enough to make a conference finals run or whatever. They may even be good enough to win a title, even though it's weird when Donovan Mitchell is your best player. This year didn't discredit all that to me because this was a nightmare matchup. And I think that against any other contender out West, again, the Lakers, maybe even the Suns, they're a tougher matchup. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, I just want to, I just wonder big picture, like, uh, I guess I'll ask a, I'll ask something like this, like, do you think that, can you package up like two or three guys on this roster and can you make a trade for another superstar? Do you even think it's necessary? I don't think it's necessary. I think that if you are going to look at this roster, I mean, clearly their sixth and seventh guys when they're fully healthy are much better than anybody else's sixth and seventh guys. I mean, Ingles and Clarkson are the two best bench players in basketball right now, probably. Ingles was a starter in this series because of Conley, but he's a bench player for the regular season when they're healthy. And if you're looking at the starting five, I mean, Bojan did his job. He made a lot of big shots. I think that Royce did his job, made shots, played defense at a high level. And then Conley and Donnie can split that primary creator role to where, at the very least, they together are the value of a superstar player. I think when it comes playoff time, Donnie pretty much on his own is a superstar level player. And then, yeah, you have Gobert, but Gobert in most matchups is still a defensive supernova. And yeah, you can try to play him off the floor. Some teams will be able to. And offensively, he's not going to have this pronounced impact. But I still think that everything we saw in this regular season from the Jazz is pretty legitimate. And maybe they won't have this good of a chance to actually go out and win it all again because of the super teams, obviously, that remain in this league and will continue to be assembled. But I, I don't think that they necessarily need to go out there and say, okay, let's scrap everything. And if they did, it would have to be, honestly, maybe upgrading Donnie and saying we need a top five, top 10 player. It's not the role, guys, in my opinion, but you're not moving on from Donovan Mitchell because of what he is already, what he can grow into. And by the way, his development as a shooter is insane. Like his assault from beyond the arc in these playoffs five made threes a game on 43 and a half percent shooting I mean he shot the ball better this whole year but that is a different level that could take him to a different level as a player when he also gets to the rim like it's nothing and could have finished a little better in some stretches of this series but he still gets there effortlessly on an injured ankle like this Jazz team is really really good I'm not out on them they just walked into a really tough matchup without their third best player and they got beat yeah on that I guess I'd say that the only thing place or primary focus I would uh I'd focus on if I'm the Jazz I'd probably move on from Derek Favors just because I feel like if you've got a guy like Gobert you'd want somebody that's a little more switchable a guy that can shoot Mm -hmm. a little smaller who can get out to the perimeter so if you inevitably run into this this nightmare matchup that is Nick Batum at the five that you know just completely washes away Rudy Gobert's magical powers um (laughs) I think you got to have somebody that's able to switch on and sub in um and that's it's not really a hard asset to find I feel like in today's league you know find a 6-8 guy who can shoot can move out to the perimeter and I don't know I think that's probably the only spot that I can think that you can really upgrade in this jazz rotation because I think when you're a small market like Utah it is kind of pointless to try to retool everything so 
I don't know. In my opinion, I think the route reload, go get you that shooting five who can switch out on the perimeter and run it back. I totally agree. I think that, that is the one spot, just a rotational guy. I mean, if they could have a Claxton type offensively, I don't even know that you need to be able to do all that much. Just so again, teams cannot do this to you and they'll still be able to get Gobert off the floor. So they'll be happy in that respect. But the jazz currently do not have a small ball five of any capacity. So yeah, I think that that is probably the answer or I don't know, man, go wild, go as small as they do. Like go Royce O'Neal at the five and say, all right, <laughs> no. we're just going to shoot as many threes on you as you are on us. I mean, that's the thing. The Jazz stuck to their identity for the most part. They rained threes in this series. I mean, they lost games five and six with 20 and 21 threes made. I mean, I think they were above 19 a game in this series on like 40% shooting. And the Clippers just happened to be able to pretty much match them blow for blow there, which again, I don't know that any other team in basketball could have. So I don't think that there's any major changes in store for Utah. I think that they played above expectations this year, but they have set the expectations going forward. And this is what I'm going to be looking for from this team now. Conference finals runs, you know, 50-something win regular seasons. I think that they showed that their core of guys collectively is strong enough to where they can merge and be a contender without a top five, top 10 player in basketball. And yes, there is a Rudy Gobert problem, but it's not as big of a problem, I think, as uh, some people are making it out to be right now. And it's also not as unexpected of a problem because this is the matchup in which he's exploited. And it happened. Tough luck for the Jazz. But again, I don't think they would have looked nearly this bad in some other matchups. All right. So with that, let's move on to the preview section here. So we've already seen game one of the series out west. We didn't get to do a full preview there. We're not going to start with that one, though, because I don't want to. Because honestly, I'm a little bit more captivated by the series taking place out east. And that is Bucks-Hawks. <laughs> Logan seems very surprised by this. Logan, as you look to this series, what's a key that stands out to you? I mean, just how the hell did we get here? Hawks-Bucks. Yeah. Um. I, this is a boring one. Uh, it's how the Bucks defensively just schematically play Trey. Um, and we saw in this first matchup uh, a lot of doubles thrown at him, and it worked. Uh, they ended up holding Trey to like 3 of 17 from the field. They held him to 15 points. Um, but it's not going to take away what Trey does offensively because, like, even though Trey didn't get his, like, he was still just toying with him. And it's. He gets into the paint. He drags Brooke Lopez out. He drags Bobby Portis out. Lob to Collins. Lob to Capella. He drags them out to the elbow, to the free throw line. Oh, guess what? You left Kevin Herter wide open, and you've just been Kevin Herter. Um, I don't think the Bucks <laughs> can stop what Trey creates. I Trey is... I've been high on Trey all year long, bro, but this is amazing. Like, I Trey yeah. is so unstoppable when it comes to playoff time and creating great offense. And... I think the key, I think what the Bucks should do, I'm going to throw doubles at them all day long. I'm going to force these guys to force the other Hawks to beat me. And I think it's a it's a double-edged sword because I think you're screwed either way. But I don't want Trey Young by himself beating me. I'm going to throw the doubles at him all day long. I'm going to come on to him on screens like when they set one. I'm pressing him at the top of the key. Force him to make quick decisions. Force him to make quick passes. Force the other guys to beat you. I think that is the key defensively for the Bucks. But again... The Nets had a had a shitty shooting series, right? We know that. If they give the Hawks the open looks that they gave the Nets, I know I said this last series, I don't think it works because there are a lot of really good shot makers here in Atlanta. And 
I thought it was a death sentence last series. They dealt with their struggles with injuries in Brooklyn. I don't think it happens again here at Atlanta. Regardless, though, yeah, sending doubles at Trey, I want the other Hawks to beat me, even though I think I just like the Hawks more. Yeah, and I mean, the other Hawks can beat you. That's what we saw, obviously, a few times in this past series and in Game 7 when Trey could not hit the broad side of a barn, as they say, and guys around him just made shots, including Red Velvet, who was transcendent. <laughs> That's Kevin Herter, for those of you who aren't familiar with his nickname. Fiery redheaded fella, taking it a little bit further than myself, but I still consider him to be part of my club. And uh, it was impressive stuff from the youngster there. I've been a Herter guy a long time. I think that most people have. He's a pretty good all-around player, but it was pretty ridiculous what he did in this one. But I agree with you, obviously, on this being a massive key. And I went back and rewatched all of Trey's possessions from that one game that he did play against the Bucks this year. And you mentioned it. It was one of his worst of the year statistically. He was 3 of 17. But I thought he got almost all good looks. He was 3 of 13 on floaters. I went through and counted. Like, these are shots that are going to be there all day if they keep dropping Brook. And he was 3 of 13 in that game, but he's made more than 50% of his floaters in these playoffs, and it is his primary weapon. So, to me, you have to find a way to keep him from getting to that spot. And the problem is, I mean, this is why you can't guard the Trey Young pick and roll. You bring Brook up to the free throw line, and then there's the lob. Like, it is just pick your poison every single possession of the game. And I think what you have to do is just... Use your best perimeter defender in Drew Holiday and have him be so physical that he just tries to deny Trey from getting to that screen as much as possible. Get over the screen, anticipate it, and fight every single time because if not, you are just playing into his hand and he is going to have his menu of options every possession. And that's what he has against basically every team. And that's why even if he has an off-shooting night, even if he's been 41% in these playoffs, which he has been, I mean, that feels crazy to say, because he controls every single game, and he's never really made uncomfortable. And we just saw the team that has two of the best perimeter defenders in basketball fail to really make him uncomfortable, fail to take away his playmaking, certainly. I mean, there were a couple of remarkable block jump shots by both T. and Simmons, and they were able to affect him a little bit in that way, but he still controlled the game. The only way you take that away is by literally preventing him from getting into that pick and roll at all. And I don't know if they can do that, but I think Drew has to do his damnedest. And whatever he does offensively is totally secondary in this series. It is about how he plays Trey Young, and then we'll see what he can do offensively. Hopefully knock down open shots. But I'll talk about the flip side of this and what the Hawks have to do with Milwaukee's best player, who obviously we just saw come up pretty big in those last three games, talking about Giannis here, but also struggle at the beginning of this series. And repeatedly find himself forced into taking shots that just are not his bread and butter, the turnarounds, the pull-up threes, as the Nets used Blake Griffin as basically just a human wall and said, okay, we will park him in the paint and we will just trust him to be strong enough if Giannis gets a full head of steam. And he was, Blake was great. And so when I look at this, I think that you try to replicate a similar formula. I don't know if you use Collins in that way or if you just guard him with Capella. Personally, I think that it's always going to be a give and take. I would probably guard him with Capella, though, because if you don't, then you are taking him away from the rim, I would say, because he has to then be on Brooke Lopez, who's going to be trying to space the floor at all times. And I don't know that Collins is quite strong enough to do what Blake did, but he is a pretty stout guy. Like, he's strong enough, so he probably could do it. But I think that when you have a guy like Capella, 
You can keep him basically parked around the rim. There isn't that dynamic role man who Giannis is going to be hitting. Like, if Giannis pulls Capella 15 feet out, it doesn't matter all that much because, well, first of all, Capella doesn't need to come 15 feet out. And then also, again, there's not going to be that lob threat dive into the bucket. So I think you use Capella there. It's unfortunate the Hawks aren't going to have Hunter because now there's a lot of responsibility on those wings to check Middleton as well. Like, that is a responsibility that some of these guys probably weren't expecting, and that's where Collins and Bogey, all these guys come into the mix and need to step up. But also, defense has not been an issue for the Hawks. They've been a top-four defense these playoffs. When Capella was on the floor, they were a great defense in the regular season, and I trust them to deliver there for the most part. They haven't played an offense as good as this Milwaukee group, but there are still ways to disrupt this formula. So I think they go with Capella on Giannis. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I agree with the Hunter assessment, especially. Um, he just went underwent knee surgery, so he's going to be done for the rest uh, of the postseason, no matter how far the Hawks go. Um, and I think he'd be imperative in stopping Giannis. But I don't know, man. I don't really think it matters who the Hawks go with. I think Capella and Collins are pretty well equipped athletically, strength-wise. Like, I think that they'll be able to hold uh, their own against Giannis all series long. I think the matchup that you highlighted is way more important uh, with Chris Middleton and making sure that you've got guys to switch out there. Uh, I do want to touch on, you uh, You mentioned Bogey. Who the hell would have thought the Kings would have had such a pronounced impact on the outcome of the Eastern Conference Finals? I mean, if Bogey, Bogey could very well be on the other side of this uh, series, and mm-hmm. the Bucks might be my pick. Um, he's definitely a very big swing guy. Um, yeah. Just crazy, man. If one trade... The Bucks and the Hawks. What a what a strange world that we live in. Um, yeah. I, my second key, uh, I touched on this a lot last series, Carson, and it's just, what do you do when Trey's off the floor? Trey played damn near every minute uh, of the series. He was on the floor about 40 minutes a game, but that still leaves 10 minutes of game time that you need someone to engineer your offense. Bogey did a pretty good job, but like it, it wasn't... It wasn't him playmaking. Like, Trey had the rock in his hands most of the series. He didn't really shoot well. Like, I don't know. Bogey is going to have to play better to win this series. That's for damn sure. You can't get uh, 13 points per game on 37-28 shooting splits. You're under two assists a game. Uh, You know, Herter was a better playmaker than Bogey in this series statistically. Um, It's going to be on the shoulders of Lou Will, Bogey. Um, I guess Herter a little bit. Uh, You just need someone in those minutes to step up, uh, create some separation, and I think that... Lou Will's a guy I trust uh, in any uh, scenario, only about 14 minutes a game in the last series, but he scored seven a night. You're going to need these bench creators to do something, and I think the guy that uh, I brought up first, I think it lies on Bogey's shoulders squarely. He is the biggest swing factor in this series, in my opinion, if he shows up for Atlanta offensively. Bogey has to be a lot better, and I think that there are a number of guys who can step up, and that's the miracle of it. I mean... Gallo is not going to be scared to take and make shots that he's been making for basically his entire career. What Herter was doing out of the mid-range with his back to the basket a little bit, I mean, the confidence was just remarkable. And the shot making actually followed. And he delivered even when Bogey wasn't himself and wasn't even out there down the stretch as he continues to deal with this little injury that seems to have started to nag him the past couple games with the knee soreness, I believe it is. Bogey has to be so much better, though, because... These other guys can pick up the slack, but he is the guy who was huge in making me really believe in this team because when he got to the level he was at down the stretch this season, and I'll give the stats again, his last 22 regular season games, he was 22 a night 
on better than 50% from the field, 49.5% from three. They need real bogey. And it's not just when Trey's off the floor. It's as the lethal shooter off the catch that he was. It's as the guy who can kill you from the mid-range with the floater game. All of that needs to be packaged together. As you mentioned, the guy who has pretty good passing vision can make some snazzy reads out of there. They need their second best player to be their second best player. And everybody else did an admirable job. But I don't think you're getting to the finals without your second best player, again, being himself. And that's what this is going to come down to in a lot of ways. So I completely agree with you there. But I can't sit here and say that I'm concerned as much as I was about the non-Trey minutes. Because they're weird. They don't have the same direction because when Trey's on the floor, it's like every possession is Trey Young. If maybe he takes a possession off, well, that other person's just going to attack by themselves and Trey's going to sit and watch off ball. But I do think that particularly when Lou is cooking, they just have guys who can get their own buckets with the second unit. And like, yeah, it's weird. There isn't as much flow to it. But when guys are knocking down their shots, I think that it works well enough. And it remains a test for them, but it's a test that I kind of think they can pass. So I'm more concerned on specifically Bogey being better, being himself, because I think that they need that. And I think it's impressive that they got out without it. But again, you don't want to keep walking that line going forward. I'll throw a key out about a couple of guys on the other side who I think need to be more consistent, need to be better. And that is Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday, both of them. The second and third guys, obviously, for this Milwaukee team, because Middleton has had his moments of brilliance in this series, but on the road against the Nets, he was 30 of 91, averaged 19 and a half points per game, and the Bucs went one and three, and they just need him to be consistently great because he is that primary perimeter creator for them. He is that late game shot maker. He is all of these things, and if he cannot deliver, then it becomes that much harder for them to win in these big moments, and I don't know that they win with him shooting nine of 26 in game seven if the Nets are themselves. Like, I thought that he still made a couple big shots, but... It ended up actually being Drew who made more of the big shots down the stretch despite him being disgustingly bad for most of that game. And they just need Drew to find his shot. I mean, he's had the playmaking impact. He's been Drew Holiday on defense, but he's 25% from deep in these playoffs. That alone damn near killed them in this series. Like, that can't happen. And that's the thing. That is why when we looked at this edition, even though Drew Holiday is obviously an upgrade from Eric Bledsoe, I was like, he is going to make it so you can't do the whole leave Bledsoe alone thing, right? And effectively play four on five at times. But Drew Holiday is not a knockdown shooter and he had the best shooting season of his career. But now we've seen him devolve to spotty shooter status. He has to get back to that mid to high 30s clip that I think he can certainly return to the mid 30s. But if he doesn't, I just don't know if they have enough reliable offensive creators, guys who can knock down shots, especially with how their core has been whittled down with DiVincenzo out of the picture. So I think both those guys are going to be massive. Obviously, those are your second and third best players. You need them to perform, but they're just more of a question mark than most teams' second and third best players, especially considering how good they are during the regular season. Yeah, and I mean, I think shooting is just uh, the biggest thing for the Bucks. period. Last series, they shot 30% from behind the arc. They made 20 less threes than the Nets. Like, you don't normally win those series. Like <laughs> normally yeah. you want to be on the other side of that. I think shooting is the most important factor for them. And that's, I think holiday and Middleton are the two biggest ones. Yeah, for sure. Connaughton's got to shoot better. PJ's got to shoot better. Bryn Forbes has got to shoot better. Bobby Portis has got to shoot better when he's on the floor. If they give him burn, like everybody's got to shoot better. Cause I don't know. I, I trusted, I trusted the Nets and their injured core. I trust the Hawks a whole hell of a lot more to knock down open looks. If you, if the Hawks make 20 more threes than the Bucks, 
I guarantee a Hawks victory. Yeah, that's part of what I think was impressive for Milwaukee, though, is for a team that normally is pretty damn good from beyond the arc, finding a way to win without that, I think is a plus for them overall. Do you think that we see this Milwaukee rotation change significantly at all? Because obviously, it was a ton of PJ in this past series. It felt like it was a little less Bryn Forbes as opposed to what we saw in the previous series. I Bobby Portis, it felt like, was pretty much a non-factor in this series. Like, Do you think we see less PJ now that they're not so concerned with the KD matchup? Do you see any shifts coming there? And if so, what would they be? Yeah, I see less PJ, uh, less Pat probably. I don't know. Pat might still get his burn with Dante out. I see less mm-hmm. PJ, maybe a little more Bobby, um, just because that's what they did in their first matchup. And uh, I think with Collins and Capella, I think it makes a little more sense to go a little bigger defensively uh, to try to stop yeah. some of those backdoor lobs. And I don't know. I, I like Bobby Portis way a, a lot more than PJ. I think PJ brings, you know, PJ brought a, a definitely an intensity and uh, a mentality to this lineup that I think they needed against a guy like KD. Um but he's, he's just not as valuable, nearly, as Bobby Portis. P.J.'s kind of washed. And I don't know if he can affect the kind of vertical athlete that John Collins is. I mean, you can turn him into a face-up player a little bit when he's creating for himself. But, I mean, the Trey Young lobs are going to be there all day. And in those situations, I would kind of just rather have a bigger body who can hang there. But maybe P.J.'s physicality they still like. I think he has to shoot better to justify him being out there for big minutes. And I don't know. I just think that maybe they're going to be all in on weaponizing these guys offensively because you're not all that concerned about stopping a big wing with a guy like PJ. I mean, maybe, yeah, they don't need PJ out there. I mean, they have their three really good perimeter defenders. They have their rim protector. And then I say, okay, we can compromise a little something for offense. We're not worried about, again, Kevin Durant again. We're not even worried about DeAndre Hunter. So I think that they go in on offense there. Any other keys here? Or should we get into our official predictions? Um, I'm ready to get into it if you are. All right. What do you see happening here? I don't know how we got here. I can't believe I'm saying this. I'm going Hawks in seven. You know, I also cannot believe how we got here. I also cannot believe I'm saying this. But I'm going to go Hawks in seven too. And uh, I just trust Trey more than anybody else in this series. And I just think he controls the game. And you cannot take him away. I mean, think about what my key for the Bucks was. It was literally keep Trey from getting to the pick and roll as much as you can. You can do that. You can make life harder on him. You can't do it for 48 minutes for seven games, though. And that's the thing. I just trust him to have his pronounced scoring playmaking impact every time out. Like, again, even when he cannot make a shot, he is controlling the game. And I trust more Hawks to make shots. Like, the Bucks rotation... It felt like it got slim with the guys who I was really trusting in this series. With Dante out, I mean, Connaughton and Forbes, they have their moments. They can knock down shots, obviously. But I just think Brooke Lopez is not a great matchup here. I mean, again, if they drop him, the floaters will be there all day. If they bring him up, the lobs will be there all day. Like, I just think that to stop this, you need to have a dynamic offense that cannot be taken away. And the Bucks' offense, when it's going, when guys are making big shots can be really great, and that's why I'm scared about picking this. Like, I still think that this is an upset, but I just don't have faith in this Bucks team. I don't have faith in their biggest guys. I don't have faith in Giannis to, again, have the same impact that you expect in the regular season, and this will be a test because 
I don't know if the Hawks have better personnel or worse personnel than the Nets. I didn't expect Blake to do as well as he did for the most part in that series. But I think that they can basically do the same thing at the very least. And they won't need to bring help all that regularly. And so then he can't have that same playmaking impact. And like, I just look around, man. And I trust seven guys in Atlanta probably so much in a way that I just don't trust seven guys in Milwaukee, even if their top three players certainly have more established resumes at this point, and you would have thought going into the regular season would obviously be the better of the group. I just am going to bet on the team who I believe in. Like, I love the Hawks. I have loved the Hawks. This is why I made the video before the playoffs talking about how they were terrifying and how I was pretty confident that they were going to run through the Knicks and could maybe pose a challenge to the Sixers. I didn't say as much of that outright, but that's what I was thinking, and I talked about that stuff a little bit. And I have been a Buck skeptic for my entire life, Logan. I have been a Buck skeptic since they became a potential contender. And yes, maybe there's a talent gap here, but I'm going to keep believing in the teams I believe in, and I'm going to remain skeptical of the teams that I'm skeptical of. And I think that the skepticism was justified. Like, the Nets are running the Bucks off the court if they're healthy, and I'm going to bet on the guy who I trust the most in this series and the team whose depth I trust more, and that is all the Atlanta Hawks. What do you think? Yeah, damn straight. And I trust the team that has better shooters, better, more reliable offense. And mm-hmm. I, let's face it, like I'm not saying that the Hawks shouldn't have got out of the series. Both were extremely close. The Bucks shouldn't have won last series. Like You don't win. I think you summed it up perfect, bro. The Hawks have mm-hmm. better depth, in my opinion. They've got the better, more reliable playoff performer in Trey Young mm-hmm. than Giannis. And I'm along for the five-seed ride, man. Yeah, wild, man. Wild how we got to this point, but the Hawks are damn good. And I don't know if this is the right pick, but you know what? I'm anti-Milwaukee. I'm anti-Milwaukee, and I also just don't like watching the Bucks play. I was disappointed to see them beat a much more aesthetically pleasing Brooklyn team. And we're pro-Ethan Ryder on this podcast. And we're pro-Ethan Ryder, baby. We're pro-Ethan Ryder, no doubt about that. Shout out to the ATL. All right. This is going to be a fun one, man. Can't wait to see it play out. Can't wait to see how Giannis is countered. Can't wait to see how Trey is countered, how they both perform in the biggest stage of both their careers. I mean, Giannis has been to an Eastern Conference Finals before, but the expectations are different this time around. They're going to be the favorite, and it'll be interesting to see if Atlanta can, again, pull a little bit more magic and find their way to the NBA Finals. And if we get to that point, uh, my head will explode because this is year (laughs) three for Trey Young. This is year three with a young core around him. And this is special. Nate McMillan was fired last year, Logan. He was fired. And you know what? I've always been a Nate McMillan guy. I've always thought that he did a really good job in Indiana. And I'm happy to say that he certainly did a better job than Nate Bjorkren, who now has also been fired. So go Hawks, man. This has been a crazy fun run, and I just can't wait to see it all play out. So let's talk now about the series that we've already seen a game of. And that game did not include Kawhi Leonard. It did not include Chris Paul. So a little bit weird there. But it's Clippers' sons. What are the keys to this series going forward in your eyes? Uh, so my first key for the series, uh, Carson, and I think it revolves around uh, similarly what the Clippers did to Rudy Gobert in the last series, and it's uh, can they limit the effectiveness of DeAndre Ayton uh, in similar fashion the way they did to Gobert. Um, in this first matchup, it wasn't really the case. I mean, they kind of picked apart Nick Batum at the five. Batum got his boards. He he tried admirably, I'll give him that, but uh, Aiden feasted on him on the interior. He still got his. Book was feeding him. Um, but yeah, I think that's the first thing. Can the Clippers space the floor enough to limit DeAndre Aiden's defensive impact and just limit his effectiveness as a player? 
I think with Batum on the floor, I think you're always going to lose um, those defensive uh, minutes. I think Aiden is going to bully him on the interior. And it also brings up a question, I think, did the Clips play DeMarcus Cousins a little more? I mean, he looked really good in that first game, knocking down mm-hmm. open shots, screening well. Um, I question Boogie's effort still at times, but uh, I don't know. Maybe that's something they turn to, but I think it's can you take away a really valuable Suns piece in the way you did to the Jazz? Um, and then uh, another aspect, um, I'll let you touch on this. Obviously, the availability of CP3 and Kawhi matters in this series as well. Yeah, that obviously is key number one above everything else. But I agree with you as far as the first key on the basketball court with the variables that are in these two teams' control. I think it has to center around Aiden because this is a very different matchup than it was against the Jazz, even though you're talking about a rim protector center whose primary impact is defensive and all that. I just think Aiton is much more capable of punishing a team for going small, which I did not expect. I mean, Aiden has not, through his entire career, been the assertive, crazy, aggressive scorer, but he's stronger than Gobert. He is, I would say, a more eye-popping athlete. He's got better touch. Like, he just has more ways to abuse teams switching little guys onto him, whereas Gobert has no post game, right? Like, Aiton, sure, maybe he can be a little bit overly reliant on the little floaters, hooks, turnarounds, whatever. We haven't really seen the turnarounds that much in these playoffs, which has been nice, but he can attack those matchups, whereas Gobert could not at all. And I think that that's why we saw the Clips. They played Boogie and Zubots 31 combined minutes in Game 1, and so... That's going to be the negotiation. Like, that's a lot more traditional center minutes than they played in really any game of that Jazz series. And so, that's going to be the equation here. Do you go more all-in on small ball? How much does Aiden punish you if you do do that? And the boogie minutes are interesting because offensively, I think that when he's knocking down the shots from the perimeter, obviously, he's a valuable player. He also believes in himself a lot and loves to try to attack out of the post and all this stuff. I don't really want him doing that against DeAndre Ayton. Like, I think Ayton is winning that matchup eight times out of ten. And the other thing is, Boogie just can't stay on the floor, man. He's averaging 3.3 fouls a game in 9.3 minutes a game in these playoffs. Fouled out of this game in, like, 14 minutes. And in one of the previous games where we saw him get action, also racked up, like, three fouls in three minutes. I mean, it's just ridiculous. He needs to find a way to stay on the floor if they are going to try to play him. Because defensively, he's big enough at the very least and has the rebounding instincts to not just get bullied by Aiton, obviously, so you can negate his impact there. And then offensively, you have a shooter, you have a competent playmaker. I mean, we haven't really seen that from Boogie at this stage, but we know that he has those instincts at the very least. But you also need to define his role. I think I would rather see him than Zubots. I don't really know, though. The Clippers have gotten shredded with Zubats out there in these playoffs. I gave this stat from before this past game, but they had been, I think it was 31 points better per 100 when Terrence Mann was on the floor, and they have been 26 points per 100 worse when Zubats is on the floor. Like, they've gotten killed with him out there time and again. He has the touch inside. He's certainly a competent role man. I just don't think that you need him necessarily to go up against Aiton. I would rather have a floor spacer but I don't think either one is ideal. I mean, the Clippers want to play small. They're at their best when they play small. I just don't know if they can in this matchup. So I agree with you. That's absolutely a key. I'll throw out another key, and this is a specific guy for the Clippers, Reggie Jackson, because he has obviously been superhuman throughout these playoffs. There may be a little bit of 
extra Reggie Jackson content coming soon for you Nerd Sesh fans. I won't give anything away necessarily, and maybe I won't go as in-depth here for that reason, but he has been that that second difference maker that they've needed. The burden has fallen on him. He's the guy with the best skill set off the bounce. He's the guy with the playmaking instincts. He was just the natural solution when Kawhi went down, and he had 24-6-4 in game one. He was good. Maybe forced a couple shots. His threes weren't falling as much as they normally do. He was 4 of 12, but he was pretty damn good overall, I thought. And then Boogie was your third leading scorer. So they need guys around him to step up, make more shots than that. But above all else, they need Reggie Jackson to continue to play as basically a second star or else they don't have really a fighting chance in this series because I don't know if Kawhi's going to come back. It doesn't seem like he's going to come back though. And if he does, he may not be himself. Like not traveling to the first two games and this is an injury that apparently... I think Peyton T. Gallagher told us this. The only guy in recent memory to come back from it because it's a rare injury was Drew Gooden in like five weeks. And so this is going to be an accelerated timetable here. And I don't know if Kawhi is going to push his body to that extent or if he'll even feel capable of going. And so it's going to be about Reggie. In a lot of these games, he needs to be that second star. He's shown that he can remarkably do it in these playoffs, but he's got to do it again in another best of seven. And that's a big burden on a guy who was a role player for this entire season. Yeah, I mean, Reggie is massive. Um, Do you think that he needs to play as well? Like, do you think that Terrence Mann also has to step up? Like, who is that next guy uh, for the Clippers that has to step up and perform? Honestly, I would probably point at Rondo, I guess. And obviously, we didn't even see that much Rondo in this past series against the Jazz. I love Terrence. I mean, he's got a little bit of creation for himself. But I don't really like him as much as that decision maker, as that facilitator, as that guy who's going to control the game in little stretches. I think that that has to be Rondo. The only thing with Rondo is just because he's not that dynamic shooter off the bounce, he's not that dynamic scorer, you're losing a little bit something there. But you don't need all that many creators. I mean, that's how this Clippers offense was structured. It was two creators, everybody else around them, spot up, make open shots. And if those guys make open shots, this team is really tough to beat as long as they have, again, that second legit creator, because they can't be a one-man show. It cannot just be Paul George. I don't think it will be, though. I trust Reggie to have a similar impact to what he's done thus far there, but if he doesn't, I think that the door is kind of shut on them. Yeah, uh, you focus on the offensive end for the Clippers. Uh, I'm going to focus on the defensive end um, for LA and what they need to do against Phoenix. And my takeaway after the first game, bruh, when are you going to take Terrence Mann off D-Book? Yeah, he's going to let the kid get lit up all game. Yeah. Put PG on him. Put your pest due defenders in the pick and roll on D-Book all game long. Obviously, this dynamic changes a little bit uh, with Chris Paul coming back and when he does because then it's just a a pick and roll nightmare, and I think the Clippers walk to their death. But Mm -hmm. you can't let D-Book pick you apart like he did in that first game. He got to his spots effortlessly. He was killing Terrence Mann with like little uh, pump fakes, pass fakes. And uh, actually, this brings up, while I'm talking about D-Book, Carson, I want to give you credit and only you credit, uh, because you have been on the D-Book Mamba similarity train for so long, and Stephen A. comes out running his mouth today, oh, D-Book is the next Mamba. Shut up, Stephen A. That's not a new take, all right, bruh? Somebody else has done it before, and it's this pasty white guy uh, right across the screen <laughs> from me. Um, he's the Kevin one who Herter. said it. I- It's me, Kevin Herter. <laughs> I just... Uh, you deserve love for uh, being on D-Book as a genuine superstar before anybody else. And he continues to show it. He's Booker's unstoppable, bro. That stopping on a dime, that momentum that he gets in there and the way he just can stop and pop on you, it's amazing. But 
That is what the Clippers have to stop. They've got to get somebody strong enough to throw him off his spots. And if you keep, and if you keep putting Terrence Mann or who somebody who is not credible to be on D-Book, you're going to lose this series just at his hands alone. I don't even think CP3 matters if, if D-Book is picking you apart like this. Although I do think it is a little encouraging that the Clippers were able to keep it this close uh, without Kawhi on the road. That being said, though, Throw your best defenders at D-Book and cross your fingers. Look, Book is special, man. All right, he's been special. And I've been a Book guy, obviously. I've been saying he's the most versatile scoring guard in basketball since we started this podcast. Eventually, I'm going to get a t-shirt printed with that on it. And this has been a testament to everything that he's been doing in silence and he's now doing on the national stage. And I think that this past game, I mean, obviously, he gets 40. But again, you saw... What he can do as that playmaker with CP off the floor and the value of having two years where he had to be this team's point guard to now get him to the point where he can facilitate at that level. He can destroy teams out of the pick and roll, finding shooters, finding Aiden off the lob. It's everything that we've been talking about, but he has just been unbelievable in these playoffs. He's putting up 29, 7.5, and 5.5 overall, but in the six games that CP has either been held to single-digit scoring when he was pretty impaired by that shoulder, it seemed, or at the very least wasn't being an assertive scorer, and now including the one game that he has missed, he has averaged 33.5-7-6 on 51-46-96 splits. That's a special offensive engine, man. That's a guy who can fit alongside another star, who can curl off screens all day, who can hit that quick-hitting offense, who can be a catch-and-shoot weapon, a good cutter, or a guy who can be your star point guard, basically, and can run the offense in that way from the perimeter, initiating every single time. The dude is just special. We are seeing it right now. And I will say, there is a lot of great young talent being put on display right now, obviously. But part of this is about guys who have the the opportunity and the situation to show what they're capable of. Because like a lot of people go out there and they say, oh, this guy wasn't All-NBA, this guy wasn't All-NBA. I love Book, obviously, as much as anybody. Like genuinely, he's one of my favorite players, has been for a long time. But if Bradley Beal were in this situation, he might be doing some pretty special stuff too. And I think that people have an instinct to say, this guy's here, so he's better. And Book has been unreal. But this, to me, this postseason has shown how many crazy offensive talents there really are. Like Trey Young, obviously, has the opportunity. He's showing it. Donnie has the opportunity. He's showing it. Not everybody has had the opportunity, but the depth of offensive talent in this league right now is utterly absurd. And... I think the book versus PG battle is going to be massive because, I mean, first of all, I agree with you. I think you have to put your best perimeter defender on book. I don't know that you can make him uncomfortable, though, because of what we were talking about. I mean, he has to initiate more from beyond the arc when CP isn't out there. When CP is out there, though, again, he curls off the screen, he gets the free throw line, and you're dead. I mean, he's hitting that mid-range jumper, or he's throwing the lob, and he has hit that mid-range jumper time and again. Last game, third quarter, he was just utterly unconscious. It was ridiculous. And I think it's going to come down to, between Book and PG, who can create more consistently reliable offense for others. And I lean Book a little bit just because, in Game 1, he was getting to the mid-range with ease, and he was dissecting the defense as that passer. And PG was 7 of 15 from deep, so he still had his numbers, but he was just 3 of 11 inside the arc. And, I mean, this is how the Clippers' offense is structured. Again, it's him shooting from beyond the arc and creating for others so they can get shots from beyond the arc. But... I just trust Book a little bit more to command the game. Both these guys are de facto point guards. They both do it well. I just lean Book a little bit here, but I don't know. It's going to be tough because when PG is shooting like he's capable of, 
and when he is playmaking like he's capable of, scary, scary offensive player as a number one option. Yeah, agreed. Um, and I trust Book a lot more. Um, I don't know. I trust Book a lot more than Paul George. I'll go ahead and say it as a playmaking engine. No, surprising engine. from the guy who does nothing but slander PG. Oh, real surprising. All right, I'll give... <laughs> I already apologized to Paul George. I'm not running this yeah. one back. Um, no, you did. I, while, while we are giving credit, um, I'll give credit to uh, Campaign also in this last game. Bruh, I mean, even though the D-Book was attacking out of the double, or uh, they were throwing doubles at him, and Campaign was kind of force-fed those touches just because he was the open guy, Cam did an awesome job of just swinging the ball mm-hmm. around the perimeter, getting it yep. to that guy in the corner, getting it to him on the wing to find those open shots, and... Carson was right, guys. Campaign's an awesome secondary playmaker. Um, he oh, thanks. Great if Chris Paul doesn't even come back. Campaign's the shit. I was wrong. So are the <laughs> Bulls. Dude, campaign is dope, man. I mean, the playmaking is obviously always awesome. And just the shiftiness, dude. I can't believe how silly he makes people look every game. It's just like he freezes and then he explodes and he just has such long limbs and like his finishes are... It's like he just can finish against any length pretty much and it's up to him to either make or miss the shot. I guess we can talk about what to make of this CP and Kawhi situation. It's tough because we don't have all that much information. Personally, who do you think is more crucial to their team in their absence or if they are out there healthy? It's a great question. Um, and I think it's one that you know we all need to address. I, I think it's Kawhi. I think they have to have Kawhi back healthy to have a chance in this series. Um, and it's like it's not even anything against Paul George. I just think that yeah, when we're talking about the playmaking aspect between Paul George and D Book, because of what D Book was forced to do without a de facto point guard in that time, he's grown as a playmaker. And I just yeah, I trust the Suns to manufacture more reliable offense without Chris Paul than I do the Clippers uh, without Kawhi. I think they need him to make mm-hmm. big shots. They need him to create opportunities for other players, and they need him to command attention from the rest of the Suns' defense for them to win this series. And wasn't really evident in that first game. Again, the Clippers kept this pretty close most of the way. If they make two more three-pointers, uh, we're looking at a game in OT. But uh, I think it's Kawhi all the way. I think they need him drastically more than the Suns need CP3. This one's close for me because the Clippers are such a machine. I mean, that shooting does not go away when you lose one player. And again, if PG and Reggie can be those creators out of the pick-and-roll in isolation and guys keep getting those good shots, they're going to keep falling. I also think, though, that the Suns can run really high-level offense without CP, as we've seen this whole year with Book as the point guard or with Campaign as the point guard. Either way, it almost feels like a draw for me. I guess I'll lean Kawhi, though, just because I think he's clearly the better player of the two. But I think that both these teams can be really good without, I mean, these guys who are missing right now. But again, Kawhi is their best player by a wide margin. CP is... In my opinion, the Suns' second-best player. Some people might argue their best. If he is their best, then I'd say you have to admit it's by a small margin. So what's your prediction here? I mean, obviously, again, we're working with limited information, but given what we do know, or put whatever caveats on it you want, if this happens, if that happens, I'm seeing Suns in four. Yeah, okay, I'm not going to go that radical. I'll go Suns in five, though. Interesting. Assuming Kawhi isn't back, I'm going to go Suns in six. I mean, game one was a battle. CP, I assume, will... I mean, he'll be back by the end of the series. I don't know when, though, because he has to clear those protocols. Like, maybe Game 3, Game 4 is when we see him. I don't think it's going to be in Game 2. That would be a pretty quick turnaround, considering he was actually positive for the virus. But I'm going to go Suns in 6. I don't think that the Clippers will only win one game. 
I honestly don't know if that's even possible for them to do because of the shooting and how dynamic they are there. I mean, they made 23s in game one. They made 23s in game seven against the Jazz. Like, this is just what they do. They rain triples with great efficiency. And I don't think that their offense has been taken away or really stunted by Kawhi being out. But the Suns are the better defensive team. They have, you know, as many guys I trust to make shots and more guys who I trust to have a legitimate multifaceted impact on the game. I don't know how they handle that Aiden equation. I don't think they're stopping Book. And I think that the Suns are just a better team top to bottom. And right now, given the landscape, man, I mean, I'd be surprised if the Suns don't win this whole thing, which is remarkable, a remarkable place to be. I mean, that's assuming Kawhi doesn't come back because I think a fully healthy Clippers-Suns series is a battle that I might barely lean Clippers in. Like, that would be an amazing series just because I think that shooting is impossibly impactful. But when I look at the teams out east, they are both so much more flawed than a healthy Phoenix team. And I went back and looked at from April 10th or whatever, we ranked our top 10 title contenders. And my top four are all now gone. At the time, it was Lakers, Nets, Nuggets. Keep in mind, this was with healthy Jamal Murray, Jazz. And there is one team standing out of that top five, my fifth team, the Phoenix Suns. And then sixth, I had the Clippers. So I don't know, man, process of elimination. And by also playing unbelievable basketball, like I'm not going to diminish, they have been unreal. I am now with you on the Suns as the title favorite to train. Any final thoughts on this before we briefly touch on some NBA news that we haven't been able to talk about previously, but that is interesting. All right, Logan says, let's roll. He's Millie rocking. All right, we're going to roll. Let's start, let's, whoa. Let's start with the Kemba trade because I think that that's the biggest story out of all this. We have some coaching changes and all that too, but Kemba is off to OKC. He's been packaged along with the 16th overall pick and a second rounder for Al Horford, Moses Brown, and a second rounder. What are your thoughts here? Sam Presti's an evil genius. I mean, that guy, he's just a beast. Um, He's going to, you give up a bad contract in Horford. I think it's a win-win on both sides. You give up a bad contract in Horford. You give up Moses Brown and a uh, second-round pick. You get another first in Kemba. Kemba, I don't even look at as, yeah, he's going to be fun alongside Shea um, for a year. They're going to move him for a first-rounder next year. I think it's a good move. You're getting another young pick, another young asset, because I don't know how he's going to do it. Presti's going to finesse somebody into giving up another first. Um, And then on the Celtics side... I don't hate it. That 16th pick could have been valuable, I agree, to get another young asset in there. But you're getting Moses Brown out of it, who I think could be a really good addition uh, to this team, a lob threat, a guy who can protect the rim for a long time alongside Jason Tatum. And I don't know, man, big man was kind of the spot that Boston really needed to focus in on. Um, Robert Williams and uh, I think Rob and Moses are going to be a really fun tandem uh, in their long arms. They do a lot of similar things. Horford, to me, non-factor. Horford doesn't even matter in this equation. Like, like, I don't know, did he get PT? Like, the reason he got shipped out of Boston was because he couldn't space the floor. And I don't know. I don't even think Horford matters in this trade. It seems like you disagree. You think Horford is, what, a big factor? I disagree. I like the Horford pickup. And I think what's complicated about this is last couple years, we have not seen Al Horford in situations that were conducive to him looking good at all. First off, we saw him in the nightmare that was Philly, where he's obviously playing with so many players who prefer to operate in the interior. Like, that just was not going to work. And then this year, we only saw him out there for less than half the year because the team he was playing for didn't care about winning at all. I still think Al Horford can impact winning. I mean, 
He is a very willing three-point shooter. He is a multifaceted offensive player because of the playmaking, because of a little bit of the skill out of the post. Defensively, again, isn't going to be a game-changing rim protector, but is going to defend the interior at a pretty high level still. I like the pickup. I mean, I can't say it's a home run because we need to see what he's capable of doing in a winning context again. But Kemba was bad this year. I mean, given our expectations, wildly inconsistent, disappointing. He's 31. He can't stay healthy. He's on a whopping contract. I think it's two years, 73 million left. Horford, you're looking at two years, 41 guaranteed. And it is a position of need. And you add, as you mentioned, good depth in Moses Brown. So if you're looking at the Celtics big man room, going from just Time Lord and Tristan to now Horford, Time Lord, and Moses Brown... Those are three legit bigs, and you mentioned the 16th pick is painful, but they've drafted poorly for a few years now. I don't know that they were necessarily going to knock that out of the park, take the more certain commodity. I think the Horford pickup is actually, hopefully, a legit win for them. I can't say that with confidence, but I can say that with optimism. And then for the Thunder, you know what, man? Presti at some point needs to do something with all these picks. He doesn't have 36 roster spots in the next seven years, but he does have 36 picks, so he's got to make some moves, package for some real, you know, top of the draft assets, even though, again, with their record, they will have some of those on their own rights as well. It's just crazy what they're doing. I think Kemba is going to be interesting there. I mean, how does he share touches with SGA? I don't know. It's not a top priority for them, but they do want to start winning at some point, I would think, because SGA is that good right now, and they just need to build out the pieces around him, Then they'll be a little bit better next year because of this, because again, Horford didn't really even play. He was kind of just a non-factor there. All right. Let's talk now about some of the coaching news. I think the most interesting one to me is Rick Carlisle just up and leaving Dallas. What's up with that, man? Bro, I, I genuinely, that is the one that made me scratch my head the most, too. I don't get it. Um, maybe he's just tired. Like, I don't know. Like, I can't imagine that. I, I assume Carlisle's going to find another job. He's going to coach another team. Yeah. And he's going to be a damn good one. Yeah. Like, what does Mark Cuban have planned? I know they... um. Just a couple days ago, they announced Dirk Nowitzki as a uh, like a special assistant. I was hoping Dirk was going to be the head coach, just because I don't know that'd be fat. Um, yeah. I don't know. Like, I just don't understand from the Mavericks' perspective how you're going to get a guy better than Rick Carlisle on the open market. Um, to well, me, it's I a foolish move. Was, I don't know that they had any say in it at all. I mean, Carlisle was oh. pretty forthright in saying this was my decision. I think that there's just dysfunction. And I mean, that's what the reporting was at one point during the season. That's what it seems to be after. And look, it's not a great sign. Kind of makes sense though. Like originating from Luca's perspective, this is a frustrating situation. Most third year guys don't have that kind of pressure to win. But when you're, you know, a fringe top five player in the league, some people might say you're the best player in the world. Yeah, the expectations are different. And KP can't be your second best guy. And like they need to do a better job of building this roster. I understand it. I just don't think Rick Carlisle is uh, the problem. I don't think he ever has been. And as you mentioned, I don't think they're getting a better coach. And I think he's going to do a great job somewhere. I mean, wherever that job that is most attractive to him is, he he's going to do well there, in my opinion. Yeah, um, I just, I don't know, man. I get that there's a lot of pressure to win, but I don't get how you can pass up a talent like Luka Doncic to coach him. You know... It must be pretty ugly behind those closed doors. That's my assumption. And maybe Luca just is not having it either. Like, apparently there was frustration on his end. And maybe Carlisle just feels like, you know what? I've won my title. I don't need to deal with this right now. But it's definitely a little disappointing to see because of, obviously, the talent that is there. And 
anytime you're switching coaches, it's a gamble, especially when you had a really good coach in-house. So again, not their decision, but going to be interesting to see how they handle it nonetheless. Other news, we had another young superstar, not on Luka's level yet, but a pretty damn good player in Zion Williamson. His coach was fired in Mr. Stan Van Gundy. What's up with that? Come on, bro. What? It's SVG. The Pelicans are the most inconsistent team all season long. Um, I think the more interesting scenario to look uh, at in New Orleans is, damn, man, is Zion going to be gone already? Like, are they just going to move off of him? Uh, yeah. Maybe that's why uh, the Pelicans make the move. I don't know, man. It's SVG. That man hasn't been good since 2009. Cut him loose. Find somebody else, somebody younger that can... <sighs> New Orleans is weird. They need an entire roster overhaul. None of the pieces really fit yeah. together. Uh, I think there's a lot of turmoil um, in New Orleans, but if you can, I think that's a reason that the job is attractive. If you can convince the coach that Zion and Brandon Ingram are going to be in town, um, that's square one and step one in finding a coach is it making sure that Zion and B.I. are committed to New Orleans. If that's mm-hmm. it, then you're looking at already in two years another complete rebuild New Orleans in which, in that case, Carson, I don't know if you have a basketball team in New Orleans for very long. Well, I mean, their roster is terribly constructed. That's what I look at above anything else. Like, and that doesn't fall on SVG. Uh, they need to learn how to play better defense. And I think that that was probably part of what you expected from him. He didn't deliver there. They need a culture setter, I think. But at the end of the day, when you're starting Eric Bledsoe and Steven Adams with this group, you're kind of screwed. Like, you're not going to win at the highest level. He unlocked Zion to a different level. Maybe that was inevitable, but we saw it happen nonetheless. You have your second guy in BI. Like, it's just crazy to me how rapidly things are moving to the point where now a guy has one year and he's immediately out of the picture. And part of that is apparently that Zion and his family were somewhat discontent and there was some dysfunction in New Orleans. Apparently, I heard something about... J.J. Redick asked not to be moved midseason. He asked this before the year, either to trade him before the season or after or not at all, and they traded him midseason. So, I don't know. It sounds like things just weren't going well in New Orleans. You need another change up there. Personally, I don't think that they're going to really miss SVG. I don't think that this is a heartbreaking move from them. Just like I don't think the Wizards moving on from Scotty Brooks is a heartbreaker. You know, Scotty, I honestly maybe defended him a little bit compared to other people, like the last year in particular because of what he did for them offensively, understanding the personnel, playing that up-tempo basketball, but he's not a particularly good basketball coach. He's had a long window to win there, hasn't done it, and another team that's in desperation mode. I mean, you need to mix things up. You have another year for sure of Beal and Russ, assuming that's what you want, and then after that, it's all up for grabs, and you got to try to maximize that window. Any other thoughts for you on Scotty Brooks getting out of town? Who cares? Hey, a lot good riddance. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough, man. Good way to put it. All right. Well, that's going to do it for us here today, then. This was a lot of fun, and this is wild because we have a day with no basketball here on this Monday, but that means more time for you guys to listen to this podcast to get ready for what is coming in the conference finals because it's going to be a lot of fun going forward, no doubt. You heard our predictions. We're both going Hawks in seven. Logan's going Suns in five. I'm going Suns in six crazy to hear Hawks and seven said out loud and crazy to hear considering where the Suns were last year Suns and five and Suns and six said out loud but that's where we are it's been an amazing wild ride of a season and I don't want it to end but it's gonna end soon enough and I need to come to terms with that and uh you know that's the reality of it all so we are done but if you want to check out more nerd sesh content you can go ahead and check us out 
on our YouTube channel. Maybe you're already here. If you are, stick around, see some of our video breakdowns, see all the full podcasts that we do here regularly. We do two of them a week. And if you're listening on audio, then you know where to find us probably, but it's Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your audio content. You can follow us on Twitter at nerd underscore sesh or on Instagram at nerd sesh or on TikTok at nerd sesh where we are starting to make some content. With that, as always, I've been Carson Brabber. I've been Logan Camden. And this was Nerd Sesh. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.